0: Hi, it's Michael Wright here. I'm one of your hosts. Uh, just a quick warning this podcast contains a little bit of strong language.
1: Drove in. The door is shut, as it always is. And when I came in, and I don't know exactly the date because it was the 29th of March, happened to be my birthday, and we'd been out for a celebration drink, as you do. First year without Jim.
0: This is Maria Collins. She's describing a night from back in 1980. Maria is a widow. She's in her 80s now, but she still lives in the same house she did that night nearly 40 years ago. It's the Collins family home in the suburb of St Heliers in Auckland. It's comfortable but modest. Mid-century, with views of the Waitemata harbour. The front door enters onto the top story. The garage is on the lower level, with a door opening onto the stairs. That was the door Maria came in back in 1980, and where we're standing right now.
1: I thought that's funny. These bits of paper that have fluttered down, well, you know, settle down there, and you know, usually you notice as you go down. So, do you want to come through? We came upstairs, and there's—you just know. I've never had a burglary, yet. so there's a draft. Okay. Well, I don't leave outside doors open when I'm leaving. You don't either, I'm sure, when you're leaving your house.
0: There were other strange things too. The power had been cut. How many burglars cut the power? Plus, hardly anything was missing. A tape recorder was gone, a digital clock, some passports, but not Maria's jewellery, which was in the same drawer as the passports. And there was one more thing.
1: And I did find a a torn photo of Jim's. It was, you know, a loose photo that was sitting around somewhere. And that was torn into bits. So I knew it had to do with Erebus.
0: Erebus meant Mount Erebus in Antarctica. It meant the Air New Zealand DC-10 that a few months earlier had flown into the side of the mountain, killing all 257 people on board. It's still the deadliest disaster in New Zealand's history. Maria's husband, Jim Collins, was the pilot
1: just a nice and he was a nice person. He was a good friend apart from anything else. There were heaps of others who said you are the luckiest woman on earth with a person like this.
0: Now there's a small group of people in New Zealand who know a lot about Erebus, and a much larger group, including me, who know almost nothing. And if you asked one of those knowledgeable people, they'd probably tell you the burglary of the Collins family home in March of 1980 was a sideshow. A tiny footnote to an epic tragedy. And they'd be right. It was, after all, one slightly odd break-in. No one was ever arrested or charged in connection with it. No motive was ever established. But, on the other hand, it's exactly what Erebus is about. A saga of such extraordinary breadth that it could conceivably include the burglary of a pilot's home. A burglary that, depending on who you talk to, was either the work of the SIS looking to find and bury some documents or a lone wolf out for some misguided retribution? How on earth did it come to this? I'm Michael Wright.
2: And I'm Katie Gossett. This year, the 40th anniversary of the Erebus crash, we're going to answer that question. We're going to tell you the story of how New Zealand's worst ever disaster became even more fraught, more bitter and more divisive in the years afterwards. How it claimed more lives, ruined others, and changed the way New Zealanders looked at themselves. Along the way, becoming somehow both instantly memorable...
3: An
0: orchestrated litany of lies.
2: ...and strangely forgotten.
0: You'll hear from a former Prime Minister...
2: Two former Deputy Prime Ministers...
0: A comedian...
2: And a US Open Golf Champion.
0: You'll hear why, four decades later, we're only just getting around to building an official memorial to the dead.
2: And you'll hear how the deaths of 257 people on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica cut deeply in a small, young country at the bottom of the world.
4: There weren't too many people in New Zealand who didn't know someone who knew someone on that aircraft.
2: This podcast is the story of a plane crash. But more than that, it's the story of how a plane crash scarred an entire nation. From Stuff and RNZ, this is White Silence. White Silence.
5: The we have appear to
6: be no to be no Don't jump to conclusions about conspiracies. It's too simple to jump to conclusions.
4: Well, it is the greatest scandal in New Zealand's history. It's a monstrous disgrace.
1: He said, I think we can let bygones be bygones, Maria. And I said, never.
0: Episode one, the break-in. Paul Dyksel would be the first to admit that when he was younger, he was a bit of a screw-up. I
4: mean, I'd failed school third. I, was, I went to Manurewa High, I was a fucking disaster. You know, I was hopeless. All I wanted to do was be an artist and play football. That was all I was interested in.
0: Dykesell is the youngest in his family, four boys and a girl children of Dutch war refugees, devout Catholics who left their lives behind in search of something better. The most important things in the Dykesill household were family and hard work. After leaving school, the older sons, Paul's brothers, went into business. Paul did not follow suit. He got a job at an ad agency in the city and rode the bus in from South Auckland every morning. He always sat next to an older guy, mid-fifties, carrying a briefcase. And every day, without fail, the older guy was reading a book.
4: And one day he said to me, you don't read. And I went, no. Nope. And then one day, not long after that, days after that, we were sitting on the on the um, bus, and he opened up his bag about halfway into the city, and he pulled out this uh, rather worn copy of Cherry Apsley Gerrard's The Worst Journey in the World. And he said, you might like this.
0: Apsley Cherry Gerard, sorry Paul, was a member of Robert Falcon Scott's famous Antarctic Expedition of 1912, That's the one where they were beaten to the South Pole by some Norwegians and then Scott and three others froze to death on their way back. The worst journey in the world is Cherry Gerrard's first-hand account of this doomed adventure and it's not an overstatement to say the book profoundly changed Dyksel's life. It instilled in him such a love of reading that he went back to university. Today he's the Australasian CEO for the Bauer Media Group. It also gave him a lifelong fascination with the ice. And so, a few years later, in 1979, Dyksel had an idea.
3: Across the ocean lies a world of enchantment.
7: We're
5: see New Zealand. We fly the Pacific. And we do it every day. Well, there's quite a remarkable sight. You can see there's quite blue smoke coming out of Mount Erebus. We're going to continue to the left.
0: In New Zealand was running sightseeing flights down to Antarctica. Dyksel talked his brothers, John, Bill and Doug, and his brother-in-law, Stephen Hughes, into going. Their wives had just returned from a holiday in Australia. Here was something for the boys to do.
4: And I suggested it. So we all bought tickets, and my brother Bill, he pulled out quite a way earlier. And then I, not long before, literally a week or so before, I had a horrendous accident playing football. And I completely destroyed my cruciate and my right knee. I, I went to hospital. And I was actually in hospital that night.
2: David Nicholson's been a public servant for a long time. He's held senior positions in government departments and diplomatic posts in the Pacific. Back in 1979 though, he lived in Christchurch with his family and was finishing up a master's degree at Canterbury University. His sister Christine was 26 years old, she taught Standard 4 at Woolston Primary School and she was working with her students on a special project.
7: She was very interested in the Antarctic because she was developing a learning module with her class on Antarctica. And so in order to prepare for that, she attended university lectures and did a lot of research into the Antarctic and into environmental issues and all those sorts of things.
2: And then while Christine had this project on the go, a friend of a friend came over from America to take one of Air New Zealand's scenic flights to Antarctica. That planted a seed.
7: And Christine thought, This is a really great idea for the end of this module. I'll take the day off work, take leave, and I'll go and take pictures, and this is a good way that I can contribute firsthand to the class on what I'd seen.
2: The Nicholson family was pretty close, and both Christine and David were still living at home. So in the days before the flight, there was a lot of talk around the dinner table about Christine's big trip. It was exciting, but kind of worrying too.
7: I guess like all things going to such a remote place, people have anxieties around that, and of course um, you have the memories of her asking whether it would be all right, and I always remember saying, oh, this is crazy, you know, it's been done before, nothing can go wrong. And so you carry that uh, forward. You know, it's not a very pleasant thing to recall, um, but that's what happened. And I remember her being um, cautious about it, but... um, that it had been done very successfully before and an incredible experience. Not many people got to go there.
2: So it was a pretty exciting time in the lead-up?
7: Very much so. Of course, subsequent to the events that happened, strange things would emerge from my mother, like she was relatively anxious about the safety of the flight and she would have a recurring dream that she woke up in snow in her seat... And these are the sorts of things that emerge after these events.
2: Your mother said this is what Christine had said. Yes.
7: So that's kind of spooky.
0: Air New Zealand had first looked at running sightseeing flights to Antarctica back in the late 60s. They shelved it though because the biggest jet they had then was the DC-8, which couldn't make the 11-hour round trip. In 1976, the airline heard its Australian rival Qantas was planning something similar. By now, Air New Zealand was flying DC-10s, which could go down and back non-stop. So, in 1977, the ice flights were on. By the time the Dykesal brothers and Christine Nicholson bought their tickets in 1979, Air New Zealand had made the trip more than a dozen times.
3: It was a huge party atmosphere from the moment everyone got on the flight.
2: This is Ian Hambly, an ex-cop who became a flight attendant for Air New Zealand and later a cabin crew union rep. In 1977, he was working on one of the first Antarctic flights.
3: As we got closer to Antarctica, there were bigger and bigger icebergs. I expected to see a lot of white, it's Antarctica, snow, but in actual fact the colours were amazing. There were every possible hue of blue and green, the sun reflecting off the ice, it was beautiful, it was really stunning. We went round Erebus twice, we went off to look at Robert Felton Scott's hut, we flew past that at 1500 feet, most of my photographs are of a hostess's backsides, <laughs> because they're all peering out the window, so I'm standing inside here, I've got all these photographs of their backsides.
2: Air New Zealand's Antarctica flights were a remnant of the golden age of air travel, when men wore ties and stewardesses channelled movie star glamour. Tickets were well over $200, more than double the average Kiwi's weekly income in the late 70s. The entire aircraft was treated as a first-class cabin. Champagne breakfast and plenty more champagne with lunch as well, prawns, scallops and chicken souvaroff for mains, and something called peach Erebus for dessert. Passengers could visit the cockpit to say hello to the captain or talk with the Antarctic expert on the flight, who was there to provide a commentary once they reached the ice.
0: He'd take them through the sites like the glaciers and dry valleys of Victoria Land, point out McMurdo Station, that's the American Antarctic base, and Scott Base, the New Zealand one, and show them Captain Scott's hut and the site where Scott and his men died.
5: And on the right-hand side we'll be looking across into... Victoria land, and the various glaciers coming down.
2: One of the highlights of the trip was Mount Erebus, the towering volcano on Ross Island, just north of Scott and McMurdo bases. It stood 12,500 feet high, slightly taller than Mount Cook, and usually had steam rising several thousand feet higher. An in-flight brochure called it the Sentinel of McMurdo.
5: Mount Erebus, which is now coming up very rapidly on the left-hand side, and you can see the plume of smoke coming from the active volcano. So we're going to get a very close view of this remarkable feature here, way down on the snowy, cold waste of Antarctica, here we have this, this active volcano.
2: This is Bob Thompson, who at the time was the head of the New Zealand Government's Antarctic Division. He was the commentator on the flight on the 21st of November, 1979. That was the flight before the crash. The last successful Air New Zealand flight to Antarctica.
3: The only criticism I ever heard of the Antarctic flight.
2: Ian Hambly again.
3: So it's a bit from Christchurch to Auckland, where a new crew got on who hadn't been to Antarctica. These people are all in party mood. They're all probably half-biscuit on the way home, you know. And suddenly there's a new crew who are stone-cold sober. They're all, you know, and it wasn't the same atmosphere for that last <laughs> leg into Auckland. <laughs> so that's the only criticism
0: I ever heard from them. Every crew member I talked, they all wanted to go there. Air New Zealand ran the first two Antarctic flights in February 1977. After that, it settled into a routine of four flights every year in the early summer. In all, 14 flights were made, and Hamley was right. They were hugely popular among Air New Zealand staff. Most of the flights were commanded by the airline's most senior pilots. So when Captain Jim Collins put his name forward, he wasn't sure he'd get the gig. He was an experienced pilot, but he was nowhere near the top of the Air New Zealand hierarchy. Here's Maria Collins again, his wife,
1: who you heard at the start. These trips were so highly sought after, and he'd wanted to do it, I think, the year before, but you know, the more senior people got them. And so he reapplied, because he's a nobody, he's not a training captain, and he got the last one. So he was thrilled.
0: Collins was rostered on to captain the last flight of the 1979 season, on November the 28th, a Wednesday. There was a rumour going around in New Zealand that it might be the last Antarctic flight ever. The oil crisis of the late 70s had pushed the price of jet fuel to almost a dollar a gallon, and sightseeing flights to Antarctica weren't exactly core business.
2: That morning, Wednesday the 28th, Jim Collins took a cab. He split the fare with his co-pilot, First Officer Greg Casson, who lived nearby. The last thing Maria said to Jim before he left was, don't forget the fish. The Antarctic DC-10s always stopped to refuel in Christchurch and a shop near the airport sold blue cod. Back then you couldn't get blue cod in Auckland.
0: Air New Zealand flight TE901 took off from Auckland Airport just after quarter past eight in the morning. On board were 237 passengers and 20 crew. Sir Edmund Hillary was supposed to be on the flight as commentator, but he was away on a speaking tour of the US. His friend and fellow adventurer Peter Mulgrew took his place. The plane made its way down New Zealand and flew over the sub Auckland Islands on its way to Antarctica. Breakfast was served and the passengers watched three movies to set the mood.
2: They would have caught their first sight of the continent sometime after midday. Maria Collins had got her daughters off to school and was having an otherwise normal day. Paul Dykesill was getting ready to go to hospital for his knee operation, and David Nicholson was doing labs at Canterbury University.
5: Last contact was made at 2:30 in the region of the uh, NAF McMurdo. At that stage, the aircraft was only about 30 or 40 miles uh, north of the base. The aircraft was flying in good weather conditions. Visibility is about 40 kilometres. There's light cloud at I think about three or 4,000 feet. So really conditions were excellent down there. There certainly doesn't appear to be a weather problem.
0: The first concern came just before 2 o'clock New Zealand time. That 2.30 you just heard is a little bit out. That was when the plane lost radio contact with air traffic control at the US base at McMurdo. This worried the Americans. The plane was only about 30 miles from the base when it vanished from the airwaves. A US Navy plane about 40 minutes behind made a brief search around McMurdo Station, but saw no sign. Two American helicopters and two C-130s went looking, but they turned up nothing as well. And uh, he informed me that his search down there, uh, he
5: told the area, but he said due to visibility, he said it was not the most complete search, and he'd recommend uh, if you had the aircraft available to redo that area, over.
2: Nearly 100 miles away from McMurdo, Keith Woodford's day was about to change.
6: And I remember, Walking into the hut and saying g'day to uh, Gary and his first comment back to me was have you seen a DC-10 flying around?
2: Keith Woodford was one of several mountaineers working at Scott Base. That day he and a couple of others had been out doing survival training with some scientists.
6: And I said no, there hasn't been any DC-10 flying over here. What's going on? And his immediate response back was oh, well, you guys are on standby because we've lost contact with the DC 10.
0: Woodford and two other mountaineers, Darrell Thompson and Hugh Logan, were at Vander Station, a small research outpost about an hour's chopper ride northwest of Scott Base. With all available helicopters tied up in the search, the three men were stuck for the time being. While they waited, they talked about what might have happened.
6: Initially, we pulled out some maps to have a look and try and work out where they were when the last radio contact had been. Was it possible that there'd been some electronics failures, radio failures, whatever, so that they'd lost all radio contact? And that was a bit hard to accept. So it was all very strange.
0: By four o'clock, air traffic control at Auckland Airport were worried. By then, they should have heard from the plane that it was heading for home. It was due in Christchurch by 7pm, but had enough fuel to last until after 9. Airport staff alerted Air New Zealand. About 8 o'clock, the phone rang at the Collins home.
1: I got a call from Flight Ops saying, and this is what alarmed me. They just said they'd lost contact with Jim's flight. And if I was alone, would I get somebody to be with me?
0: Paul Dyksel, who should have been on the plane, had just taken a pre-surgery sleeping pill when he got a call from his wife. She didn't know any more than Maria Collins, only that the plane that Bill and Doug and Stephen were on was unaccounted for. Paul remembers that the guy in the bed next to him overheard the conversation. And then he said to me,
4: I'm a policeman, I can probably find out a bit more. So he then started making some calls.
2: David Nicholson finished university early that day so he and his parents could head out to the airport at about 6 o'clock. They were looking forward to hearing about Christine's adventure. No idea at this point that anything was out of the ordinary. So we
7: were at um, Christchurch Airport all waiting and there were some delays and I think I recall us being moved to a lounge and encouraged to look out the window for the aircraft coming in the horizon. What time would that have been? Uh, Six, seven, seven, eight-ish. And then um, some people started to talk about, maybe there's something wrong.
2: The whole time the plane was out of contact, the clock was ticking. By 9.30, it was out of fuel, and there was still no sign of it. Wherever it was, it was no longer flying.
7: Around about nine or 8 eight-thirty, they said there must be something wrong because the plane would have run out of fuel by now, and therefore it won't be coming back, and we'll keep you informed,
5: so go home. Well, it's with great regret that we must uh, now accept that the aircraft is lost fuel reserves were exhausted approximately half an hour ago, and the aircraft has to be down. We can only reiterate uh, Mr Davis's comment expressed earlier that there was still considerable
0: hope. In hospital, Paul Dykeshall's policeman neighbour had kept him up to date. When he heard the plane was down, Dykeshall discharged himself and headed for the family home in Manarewa.
4: Well everyone, everyone was there, the whole family was there, and, and everyone was beyond distraught as you can imagine. and. Um, not knowing was, you know, no one knew for, for certain. So there was a lot of conversation about what potentially could have happened. And, you know, there was, I think, a lot of um, speculation about, oh, look, if they've crashed at sea, it'll be all right. Because they've got life rafts and all that sort of stuff. You know, everyone's grasping
0: for hope. Across town at the Collins home, something similar was playing out.
1: My parents came, because they lived around the corner, they came down. And then the room started to fill with people and I heard on the television in the 9 o'clock news or whatever it was, Air New Zealanders concerned about an aircraft and I thought. But still nothing more was said, they were just concerned but the fact that it was now being broadcast. And my living room is filling up with neighbours and people who knew Jim and I thought, this isn't real.
0: Jim and Maria had four daughters and the two eldest, 15-year-old Catherine and 14-year-old Elizabeth, were still awake. They thought their father had landed the plane on an iceberg and he and his passengers were now floating around in the Antarctic waiting to be rescued. Their father, the captain, would have been the last to disembark and, dressed in his short-sleeved pilot's summer uniform, would probably be the coldest.
2: At Christchurch Airport, David Nicholson and other relatives still didn't really know what was going on. It was really,
7: uh, you know, a pensive ear, but nobody knowing what to do, really. Um, is there a problem? Isn't there a problem? Nobody could confirm it, but they said the odds were that there was, you know. Um, and that we should go home and wait for contact.
2: And at Auckland Airport, friends and family of other people on board gathered, waiting for news. As they arrived, they were taken to a private room away from the media.
5: I would say there'd probably be about 30 or 40 relatives and friends of people on board flight 901. Uh, I can only admire and respect their courage and fortitude up there in the lounge. They're very calm and collected. At the moment, probably they know no more than the rest of New Zealand listening in anticipation for news about the missing flight. Uh, there are no emotional scenes. There's no weeping. I think uh, the people out here are accepting the news as it comes to hand. Three, uh, Max Center, uh, stay where you are. Search that uh, area completely. I will launch two helos to accompany you in a hurricane. Roger, that relayed has been a first spot uh, spotted uh, on over. The record game we have located the records of the APC. There's appear to be both survivors are taking out there appear to be no survival Just wanted to tell you it's um it's now uh, coming through, of course, new probably um some of you have already ascertained that the wreckage has been sighted um, at uh, in the Antarctica on um, a location which indicates um, Mount Erebus. At one
1: o'clock, I can't remember if I... I think I heard it by phone from Flight Ops, that they'd found the wreckage, or they'd they'd seen the wreckage, and they didn't think there were any survivors.
4: It was very late. I'm thinking sort of 12 o'clock, one o'clock, we we had been informed. And then everyone kind of went home, went to bed, I I think.
7: So what we did was uh, we went home, and I remember Um, I I joined my parents on their bed, and we lay there listening to the radio. And I don't know what time, but I think about, I imagine it was about 3am in the morning, her name was read out as being one of the dead on the radio.
5: The time is 7 o'clock. Good morning. For Morning Report, Jim Sullivan and Peter Sledmere here, and we're waking today to one of the grimmest reports since these programmes began. On the DC-10 crash in the Antarctic yesterday, the facts as we have them at the moment can be put as simply as this. An Air New Zealand DC-10 passenger plane on a scenic flight to and from the Antarctic was reported overdue yesterday evening. Bob Thompson, the head of the Antarctic Division of the DSIR, describes the crash scene. From the air, it appears to have scattered over two or 300 yards really on the opposite side to an aircraft that would presumably have been a approaching McMurdo Sound. And for a report on the current rescue attempts, Di Kirby at the Harewood base in Christchurch.
1: An hour ago, two helicopters left McMurdo base with two expert mountaineers
5: on board from the New Zealand Vanda station. We understand...
2: In fact, there were three mountaineers on board, Hugh Logan, Daryl Thompson and Keith Woodford. Scott Base and McMurdo Station are perched on the tip of a peninsula on the south side of Ross Island. The chopper took them around Cape Bird to the north side, to Lewis Bay, where the northern slopes of Erebus rose from the sea.
6: As we were flying around, I just had that sort of feeling, hey, I think I know now what it's like to go into battle. Big unknowns, horrible weather, you know, all these things.
2: Then they saw it. It looked just like the search plane described, a long black smear in the snow, debris everywhere, not much of anything that resembled an aeroplane. From the air, a few dozen bodies were visible. There had clearly been a massive fire.
6: We came round, we saw the crash site, and just total shock at the disintegration of the plane that had obviously occurred. I hadn't appreciated, before we arrived, just the extent of the disintegration.
2: The three men jumped from the chopper and did a quick recce of the site. It was soon clear there were no survivors. With only their personal climbing gear, there was nothing to do but wait to be picked up again. Hugh Logan took out a notebook. The three men sat in the snow and started planning what to do next. How many men would they need? What kind of men? Air accident investigators? Police?
0: Would the new arrivals know about mountain safety? How would the site be made safe for them if they didn't?
2: How would bodies be
0: handled? Where would helicopters land? How many tents would they need? What about food, toilets, communications?
2: Within 12 hours of the crash, Logan, Thompson and Woodford had a plan to start recovering the bodies.
0: But as they made plans, back in New Zealand people started asking questions. Like, what was a commercial airline doing running sightseeing flights down there anyway? This was something the Americans privately kind of resented because they had to babysit the flights once they were in McMurdo Sound, and if there was a crash, they really weren't sure they could cope.
5: You know, if it had turned out that there had been a lot of survivors, I just really don't know what we, where we would have put them. Uh, this accident happened within what 40 miles of McMurdo. Suppose it had happened, uh, let's say, 300 miles away from McMurdo. Trying to get a plane out there would be impossible get any helicopters out there. The whole um, thing has been a lot of worry to
2: us. And besides the question about whether Air New Zealand should have been down there at all, there was this. What was the plane doing on the north side of Ross Island? Remember what Bob Thompson, the Antarctic Division boss, said the day after the crash? It's
5: really on the opposite side to an aircraft that would presumably have been a approaching McMurdo Sound.
0: This is what Thompson was wondering. The Air New Zealand flights took pretty much a direct route from the southern tip of New Zealand to McMurdo Sound, about 2,500 miles south. McMurdo Sound is a bay shaped like the letter U. Ross Island is at the bottom of the U, so if you were flying into the Sound from the north, you'd see it ahead of you and slightly to the left. Remember, Ross Island is where Scott Base and McMurdo Station are, and most importantly, where Mount Erebus is. The main air route was down the middle of the Sound, so that meant on pretty much every flight... Ross Island should have passed by the left side windows.
2: So why was flight TE901 flying straight at Ross Island? And why was it so low that it hit Mount Erebus? On Wednesday evening, the night of the crash, Milton Wiley was at home painting the ceiling of his shower. It was about nine o'clock.
6: And the phone rang and it was Ron. He said, you've been listening to the news. I said, no. He said, well, you better turn the radio on because... uh, there's an Air New Zealand aircraft overdue uh, in Antarctica and about now an it's sort of run out of gas. And uh, looks like uh, it's going
2: to be all on. Ron was Wiley's boss, Ron Chippendale, New Zealand's chief air accident investigator. It was his job to find out what happened to flight TE-901, how it happened, why it happened, and ultimately, who was responsible. Chippendale was right. It was going to be all on.
5: The New Zealand government has released the official report of its Chief Inspector of Air Accidents on the DC-10 crash. The report says the probable cause of the accident was... What he did was atrocious,
3: absolutely atrocious. Everyone seems to wonder all the same what the pilot was doing on that particular side of Mount Erebus. Then suddenly it's like that stopped. So I don't think they knew what hit them, basically.
1: So I sat there in the lawyer's office saying, well, you know, what happens now? Am I married to a murderer?
2: That's next time on White Silence.
0: White Silence is a co-production between Stuff and RNZ, written, produced and presented by Katie Gossett and me. Michael Wright. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ, and for stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Hardeveld, Carmela Heyman, and Adam Dudding also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer and included audio from Ngaotonga Sound and Vision and Archives New Zealand. You can subscribe to the full six part series at Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Podbeam, and other podcast providers. You can also go to the staff or RNZ homepages to find details on how to subscribe.